Well, good morning again. Uh, I'm Doug Moss, one of the teaching pastors here, as I said earlier uh, just now. But um, I'm excited to get to talk about Palm Sunday with you because there's something that's always bothered me about Palm Sunday. You see, on Sunday, the throngs welcome him as a king into their city. And on Friday, five days later, the crowds demand his death and torture and crucify him on a cross. What went wrong in those five days? That's a big shift, right? For someone to come in and and be greeted as a king and, and they're singing songs and Hosanna. And five days later, he's been killed by that same crowd. Something had to happen. A crime was committed 2,000 years ago. And it's a crime that I believe is still so important today that we need to understand the repercussions, what happened, why did it happen, and we we need to know because it impacts the lives of of me and everyone else here gathered today and everyone in the world, in my opinion. I mean, lots of people were killed on a cross in ancient Rome, you know, thousands at least, and yet there's one person who was killed, one crime that was committed that we are still talking about. So I think this matters, and I think we need to spend some time this morning, I think it would be really beneficial to ourselves, to figure out this crime, who did it, why it happened. Which means that we get to be detectives this morning. And I don't know about you, but I was made for this day. Because I grew up on murder mysteries, uh, TV shows. I grew up on Murder, She Wrote, Columbo, Matlock. I've watched Diagnosis Murder, Psych. Like, I've, I've watched all these shows. I've read every Sherlock Holmes story ever written. Uh, Father Brown. You, might, you haven't even heard of some of these detectives. I've read Lord Peter Whimsey, Father Brown, Hercule Poirot. I've read them all. And so if we're going to be detectives, I am stoked and I am really excited for the ride for the next 30 minutes. And I don't think I'm alone because they keep making more CSIs and y'all keep watching them, right? I don't think it's just me that likes solving crimes or seeing people come to justice. I think that's all of us, right? You know, I mean, that's why they've got to do a CSI New York, a CSI Miami. They're running out of places for CSI. Like the next one's going to have to be CSI Wisconsin. And we're going to be figuring out, you know, who stole Farmer Brown's buttermilk. You know, and, and we'll be riveted. You know, there'll be things we never thought we would see, right? So, so I think that this isn't something that should be too foreign. I hope that maybe you're as excited as I am to really dive in. Because what I do believe is this, that this crime matters, And understanding it, knowing who did what and why, I I think absolutely has an impact on our lives right now, today. Okay, so let's let's put on our our deer stalking caps, you know, the Sherlock Holmes war, and let's go along on this crime solving journey together. All right. And so the first thing I want to do, though, is I want to get rid of any red herrings. Some of you, uh, you know, that that have read mysteries, like you know what the red herring is, right? Like that's the the really obvious clue uh, that, uh, but the more you pursue it, it it just, it leads to a dead end, but but it takes up a lot of time and resources. And and we're we're smarter detectives than that. So we're not going to fall for any red herrings. And so the one I want to get rid of right away when we're trying to figure out who committed this crime and killed Jesus and why, uh, the first one is it wasn't Rome, all right? Okay, let's just be real obvious. Were they the ones that that were the official government and it was their cross that Jesus was crucified on and and they sentenced him to death? Absolutely, that is true. But, But they were, in my opinion, merely the murder weapon. 
right? It's kind of like knowing that Lee Harvey Oswald shot President Kennedy, right? Like, like there's no doubt that he shot him. The, the, the reason why that, cr- that crime doesn't feel resolved for us is because we don't know exactly who put him up to it and who was behind it, right? Uh, so you can know who pulled the trigger, but that doesn't mean you've solved the crime. And in this case, the Romans pulled the trigger, but I don't think that they're how we're going to find a solving of the crime, all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to treat this like cold case. Anyone else watch cold case? Oh, I love, I love cold case. All right, so this is where we are. We're in a cold case position. The crime was actually committed 2,000 years ago, but we've got evidence. You know, we've got boxes and boxes of evidence that we can sort through, even though it's a long time later. We can actually bring some skills to the case, and we can solve this case. So let's look at our evidence. And the key thing, I've already selected it for you. Here's the key piece of evidence that I want to look at with you this morning. Uh, it comes from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in Holy Week, and just to give you some context for it, so Sunday, they welcome him in with palms, right? We just, we just reenacted that ourselves. Monday, he comes back to Jerusalem, he clears out all the moneylenders in the temple, and that goes over super well, and then he goes out, and now it's Tuesday, and he comes back to Jerusalem, and now he's engaging in conversation and discussion and debate with all the religious leaders and all the people in the temple. So this is Tuesday of his final week, and this is what we're looking at. So we're, we're going to attack this story. We're going to look at the evidence. We're going to see where it takes us as we solve this crime that was committed 2,000 years ago. Let's see. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Mark chapter 12. So already, we are in great position as criminals. The murder victim left a note. Right? This is like that Sherlock Holmes story, a study in Scarlet, where where they find the crime and the body's there, but they've written the name Rachel in blood, and so they know, oh, we we need to look for a Rachel. Like, this is the equivalent uh, of Jesus saying, hey, I know I'm going to die in two days, and when I do, I'm going to leave you a clue as to who it was and who did it. Like, we've got Jesus' closing statements. We've got some of the last words of the victim, which means we've got an obvious suspect already, right? You always have an obvious suspect. And hopefully, as you went through and listened to that reading, someone jumped out at you pretty clearly, right? 
Like for me, it's like when I watch, uh, actually one of the reasons I don't like the CSI uh, TV shows all that much myself personally is because I feel like it's always obvious who did it because like, you know, the detectives will be doing the investigation and they'll, they'll invest, you know, they'll interview the landlady and, and it's someone you've never met. And, and then they'll interview a coworker and, and it's someone you've never seen before. And then they'll interview the boss and it's Ted Danson. And you're like, Hey, they wouldn't pay him the big bucks for that guest starring spot if he wasn't the murderer. Right? So I feel like that always gives it away, right? There's always the obvious suspect, and hopefully there's someone that's maybe sticking out to you, right? There's an obvious suspect. Let's, let's look again in case you didn't see it. All right, very end. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. It's about them. It's the Pharisees. It's the religious leaders. It's the elders of the church. It's, it's them who did it. This is the easiest case to solve ever. Open and shut. Case closed. Like, this is, it's done. Like, they, they, he says this parable. They know he's talking about them, and they go away mad. And then two days later, they kill him. And it's even obvious if, if it's them, if they're the who of this crime, then the why is super obvious, right? I mean, this is the guy who the day before Monday goes in and like cleans out their business model, right? The religious leaders, they're used to being in authority. Like they get to tell people what to do. They have privileged position in Rome. Um, all the people have to do what they say. And now here comes Jesus and they're saying Jesus is the king and they're, and they're waving palm branch saying he's the new guy in charge. And of course people don't, you know, religious leaders and people in charge of anything, they don't want a new person to come be in charge. Like he came in, he was challenging their authority. He was disrupting their business model. And then to top it all off, he tells a parable that fingers them for the crime. Done. Except it's never that easy, right? The obvious suspect is never the one who actually ends up doing it. I was watching one show, uh, it was Daredevil, season one of Daredevil, and the show opened with a, with a man murdered on the ground and a woman standing over him with a bloody knife and the cops burst in and she's like, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And, and then the cops arrest her for the crime of murdering this guy. And the one thing I know is she absolutely didn't do it because they got 55 minutes left of show. She's, of course she's innocent. Right? It, it's never the obvious suspect. It's never the one that you think. And, and so the person that you immediately jump to, it can't be them. And in this case, I think there's even a good reason, as we look at the parable and, and look at the evidence, to not think that it's the obvious suspect of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You see, because Jesus didn't tell parables for the sake of fingering suspects or accusing people of crimes. Jesus told parables to instruct and educate and challenge those who are interested in what he had to say. The people who thought that maybe this guy, Jesus, really is different, maybe he really is special, and they wanted to listen and learn and grow, he told parables for them. But when it comes to just accusing someone of a crime, he doesn't need a parable. We saw that with Judas. You know, like they're, at, they're at the Last Supper, and Judas is like, you know, is it I, Lord? And, you know, and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas says, is it I? And Jesus said, yeah, it's you. It's totally you. He didn't, he didn't say, like, oh, let me tell you a parable about who it is. Like, he just... It's Judas. You're the one that's going to betray me. Like, he just calls it out. And so if it was only to accuse the Pharisees, Jesus didn't need to use a parable, and it wasn't even his method to use a parable. The parables are for us, for the people that actually want to hear what he has to say. So let's actually think about this parable for a second first. If you're going to dissect a parable, you've got to 
map out the symbolism, right? Parables are, they're, they're not literal stories. They didn't really ha- historically happen. They're, they're metaphors that Jesus tells, they're fables that he tells uh, for the sake of teaching people a truth. And so to understand them, you've got to map a parable onto its equivalent person, right? So, so just to go along with me, let's, let's deconstruct this parable and figure out, figure out what's going on. Who must the vineyard owner represent? Like, who's the vineyard owner in this parable? Okay, well, it's God, right? The vineyard owner is God, okay? And so then, when it says that the vineyard owner sends all these servants and messengers, you know, well, well who must that correlate to in the real world? Well, well, if the vineyard owner is God, then that means the servants and messengers are the prophets of God, the people that speak for God and, and tell people his truth, right? And so then, who is the son? The son that gets killed, right? Hopefully this one's super easy for you guys. Like, so who, who's the son? Okay. All right. So, so far, so good. Like we're, we're mapping, we're mapping out this parable. All right. Vineyard owners, God, got it. The servants and messengers are the prophets. Got it. The son is Jesus and, and they killed him. Yep. Got it. it. All maps perfectly. Who are the wicked tenants? Again, like I already said, it's probably not the obvious suspect, the Pharisees, even though the Pharisees heard that parable and knew it was spoken against them. It's probably not them. So who might it be? And as we think about that, I need to remind you of yet another standard thing that happens in mystery, murder mystery stories, TV shows, and books is, is that after you've eliminated the obvious suspect, then there's that person, the nice person, the one you would never suspect. And they're so sweet and they're kind and they're friendly to the detective and they're so helpful in solving the mystery and you just love them right away. But then, after you've eliminated the obvious suspect, clues start to come up. Evidence starts to point disconcertingly towards the very person that you liked the most. The person that you didn't want to see uh, be accused and the one that you, you thought, surely it can't be that person. They're too nice, they're too sweet. But maybe it's them. And so then as I continue to dive into this evidence, this cold case that we're looking at, I have to start thinking, maybe it isn't the Pharisees. Maybe it isn't this obvious suspect. Maybe there's somebody else that I really don't want to suspect. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's us. So let's, let's look at the, the parable again. Let, let, let's see what Jesus is saying one more time. So we go to verse two. At harvest time, he, the vineyard owner, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. All right, so here's the thing. As I start mapping this out, all right, vineyard owner's God. Servants are the prophets. Son is Jesus. What's the vineyard itself? Well, if the vineyard owner is God and it says that he you know, made this place and set up a watchtower and made it fruitful, set up the, the wine press and set up all these things and then gave it to someone else to live in and work in and steward, well, that's starting to sound eerily similar to creation, 
right? The, the, this world that we live in, right? If God made everything and, and then gave some people to live in it and steward it, right? That's Genesis 1. That, that's God saying, hey, you know, this is your place that I want you to take care of. I want you to steward creation. Well, then shoot. Then anyone who lives in the vineyard is the tenant, which means that anyone who's living in this life and in this world, that means that the tenant is us. And if I'm being really honest with myself, that portion of the parable maps pretty well onto my own engagement with God's truth for my life, right? Because I'm going along, I'm living and working in the vineyard, I'm doing my thing, having my job, raising my family, and then God comes along and wants his due, He wants to correct how I'm doing things. He wants to tell me the truth for how he wants me to run his vineyard. And I don't receive that very well. And guys, I work for the church. Like this is my career. I love God. And yet I know for a fact that when when God imposes on my life, I don't receive it kindly. I'll give you one very real example from my life. My wife and I, when when we had our third child, um, you know, we're just struggling with the cost that came along with that. And so Mia went back to work and we had someone who's very close to us, a, a strong believer, someone we trusted and respected and, and, and spoken to our lives. And this person came to us and said, you know, guys, this is really a bad move. This is unbiblical that you're sending your wife back to work instead of being home, raising the babies that God has given you. Now I'm actually really sympathetic to that position, but guess how well that conversation went down. We didn't say, oh, thank you for bringing God's truth and telling us how to run our vineyard better. No, we said, butt out and mind your own business. We got bills to pay. You want to buy our groceries for us? Right, and, and that's me. I know that even when someone who's good-hearted and well-intended comes to me and says, hey, there's some biblical truths you need to hear. There's some stuff that the vineyard owner needs you to understand and do and live. I don't receive that well, and, and, and I know that, that you struggle with it as well then. I know that there are things, uh, each and every one of you, that you don't want me to say from up here. I don't know what it is for you personally. You know, maybe, it's, maybe it's sex stuff. You don't want to hear what God has to say about your sex life. Or you don't want to hear what God might have to say about finances, you know, the way Chris was just up here talking. Or you really don't want to hear what God says about politics. Uh, that's, that's a non-starter. And if someone were to say those things to you, I think we have to be honest with ourselves that our first response wouldn't be, wow, well, God just gave me this really challenging word and I'm so grateful for that. I'm gonna change my life immediately. I think instead we look at the parable and we think, no, when when a prophet comes and tells me what God wants me to do with this vineyard, I tell him where he can go. Maybe I don't beat him and kill him, but I sure unfriend him from Facebook. And so I think we have to very honestly and sincerely grapple with the fact that this parable might not have been Jesus pointing to the Pharisees as the bad guys, the ones who committed the crime, but that he might be pointing to us. I'll give you one filter that I was given just this week and and it punched me in the gut. So I'm sharing it with you as something that hit me hard and maybe it hits you hard. But a friend shared something that I'd never heard of before called the says means fallacy. He called it the says means fallacy. And and here's how it works, which is when the Bible talks about an issue that is not, uh, that doesn't affect you personally, well, then the Bible says, right? So, so if I don't have, if I'm not uh, gay or if I don't have a homosexual person in my family, well, then the Bible just says that homosexuality is wrong. 
But when the issue actually does affect me personally, well now, well now the Bible means. Right, well, yeah, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, but when it comes to like divorce, well, what the, what the Bible means about divorce is that in a perfect world, if everything went right and both people were fully committed to the marriage, well, well then you shouldn't get divorced. But, but if it's not working out, then just go ahead, right? Right, don't we play those games? And so I don't, I don't know what it might be for you, but, but I know that there are issues. I see it in my own life that it is so easy to say, oh, the Bible says you did something wrong. But when it comes to saying something else, well, well the Bible means something a little different. It's, it's much more complicated uh, than what you're trying to say, right? And when, when my friend shared that, I just said, boy, that, that hits me. That, that's exactly right. And, and if that's true, if, if that means that when the vineyard owner actually has something to say that I, and I find ways to excuse it or explain it away, then shoot, I'm the wicked tenant. And shoot, I'm the one that, that pushes off the prophets. I'm the one that disagrees with and, and, and challenges and kicks out of the vineyard anyone that might tell me differently. Which means that if the question is who and why committed this crime, well, then the, then the answer is we did. Not 2,000 years ago. We weren't there like physically actually being in that moment. But every time that we forget that we live in this life on lease, Every time we think that this is my family, my house, my job, and I will decide how I run those things, we're rejecting the authority of the vineyard owner. We're saying to him, we don't want you, we don't want your servants, and we're forgetting that everything we have, we have on lease. That this family I have, it's because God has entrusted me to raise and shepherd and steward and and guide my kids wisely in his name. This house I have, it's because God has given it to me to use and, and steward in appropriate ways. The job that I have is because God has called me to be a blessing and a service to the world around me. My job is not so I can make money and live. That's a nice feature of it. But the purpose of it is that the vineyard owner has given me something to do. And every time I forget that, well, that makes me one of the wicked tenants. And I don't know about you guys, but that evidence seems unfortunately pretty compelling. The nice guy, the one that you'd never want to suspect, us, we probably have some real guilt to face in this crime, this cold case that was committed 2,000 years ago. And yet, there's one other thing that always happens in the mystery shows or the books. See, after you, you, you've gone along for the ride, it's been 45 minutes into the episode, you're most of the way through the book, and the evidence is piled up and it is clear and obvious who's done it, and, and there's no question at this point that where everything's pointing, who is the one responsible for the crime. At the last moment, the detective always spots one clue. One thing that says it's not who you thought it was. Even though it was, it was, there's the obvious suspect, we got rid of them really early on. There's the nice person, the one you didn't want it to be, and everything looks pretty damning against them. At the last minute, the detective says, wait, there's a twist. There's something you didn't see coming. There's a mastermind who's behind this crime. There's someone behind the scenes that you never even thought to suspect, even though that they were there and present the whole time. And I think that there is just such a mastermind in this crime from 2,000 years ago. And to help help build up to this clue that I think is so important, let me talk to you for a moment about parables. 
right? We've already talked about this parable a little bit. Jesus spoke to the crowds in a parable. We've talked about how parables are always metaphorical or symbolic, that there's, uh, there's things that map to, you know, uh, symbolic things that map to a real world thing. You know, the vineyard owner is really God and the wicked tenants. I mean, those are almost definitely us, right? Like those all things map. But there's one other thing about a parable that I think we as 21st century Americans don't notice, which is this, because the parables always take place in a cultural setting that is distant both in time and geography from us, we tend to just take the parable at face value. We tend to, we just listen to a parable and we think, all right, yeah, that, that sounds good. That sounds fine. Like, okay, you know, you know, what lesson can we learn from this? But that's not actually how parables worked. In fact, every parable Jesus told, there is always, uh, in fact, a ridiculous, absurd detail that anyone of the culture and the time listening to that would have immediately popped their head up and said, whoa, 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 that does not make sense. And it's in that ridiculous detail, that absurd moment, that the key to understanding and unlocking a parable lies. So you just give you a couple of quick examples of that. Like some of you have heard of the parable of the farmer, this farmer who goes out and he scatters his seed everywhere and some of the seed goes on fertile soil and some of it goes on rocks and some of it goes on the road, right? We've all heard that. And, and then there's this great metaphor about what kind of spiritual believers we are, right? You, you guys have heard that story. Here's the thing. No farmer has ever farmed that way in the history of humanity, That's not what farmers do. I mean, I don't know if you know about farming today. We actually plant seed now by GPS coordinates. Do you guys know that? Like our John Deere tractors now are so state-of-the-art that they can actually plant the seed precisely just, and they steer themselves through the rows by GPS. The farmer doesn't even have to do anything anymore. He can just play on the iPad and sit in the the cabin and and let the tractor plant things by GPS. But even 2,000 years ago when they didn't have access to that technology, they still didn't just go throw the seed on the road. Like, this was their crop. This was their lifeblood. This is the stores that they needed to get through the winter. They didn't just waste the seed. They planted it carefully in the fertile soil. And so anyone listening to that parable would have said, no farmer has ever done that. This parable does not make sense, Jesus. Or another one, the parable of the good shepherd. You know, Jesus tells this parable about this shepherd who has 100 sheep and one gets lost. And so he leaves the 99 and goes and he finds the one wherever it is and brings it back. And, and I think we all nod and just say, oh, that's so beautiful. What a great shepherd. He loves the sheep. Anyone in the time listening to that would have said, that shepherd is an idiot. No, you don't leave the 99 to go get the one. That's stupid. This, that's called cost of doing business. Like, the, like your herd is how you're going to make your livelihood. You've got to sell those at market. And if, and if you lose one on the path to the market, well, then that's, you just chalk that up to a business expense and you move on because you've got to sell those 99. Right? These parables always have a ridiculous detail that you need to notice to make sense of the parable. And that ridiculous detail is the clue we need to truly solve this crime. It's not the obvious suspect. It's not the nice one that we don't want it to be. I I don't think it's ultimately us that have the blame. There is one detail that is absolutely ridiculous in this parable that Jesus told. Did you guys catch it? So this is the moment. This is the moment where Jessica Fletcher says, I know who it is. And everyone at home is saying, oh, did I figure it out yet? Like, who is it? In my family, we had a weekly contest. Whoever could solve the crime before Jessica Fletcher got bragging rights for the whole rest of the week, right? So this is it. So I'm giving you the heads up. This is the moment. I'm going to reveal the clue, the clue that turns everything upside down and actually is going to help us solve this crime. You guys ready for it? See if you caught it. Verse five, the vineyard owner sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. 
he sent him last of all, saying, Surely they will respect my son. No, he didn't. No, they wouldn't. Put yourself in these shoes, guys. If, if you are running a business, you're running a vineyard, and you've sent servants and messengers, and they've killed and beaten all of them, does anyone here think that you would send their son, and suddenly these same wicked tenants would go, oh, the son, oh, never mind, we're sorry. No. You don't send your son to that situation and actually have any hope that he's going to come out of that alive. If we take this detail and this parable at face value, then what we're saying is the vineyard owner is an idiot. Just like that farmer, just like that shepherd. But here's the thing. I don't believe the vineyard owner is an idiot. Since I think the vineyard owner is clearly meant to be God, uh, and and God, uh, far be it from me to speculate on, on the weakness of God's intellect, he is not an idiot. Which means God knew full well what was going to happen when he sent his son to the wicked tenants. This wasn't a woe is me moment. Oh, I I thought that my son they'd respect. Oh, I, I can't believe that this happened. He knew. He knew what the wicked tenants were going to do. They'd proven it over and over again. And to, just to get really hard on this, because this matters. Like, this is not just some legalistic, like, like, shifting of, oh, look at this clever thing. Like, this is really important. If I know that there is a pit of poisonous vipers in front of me that that are lethal and fatal in their venom, and I choose, knowing I don't fall in, I don't stumble in, I don't trip, and I choose to walk into the pit of vipers, and they bite me, and I die, is that the snake's fault? I, I, I don't think it is. I think you have to look at the human being who chooses to knowingly walk into a, uh, a pit with, with creatures that he knows what they do. And if we're the wicked tenants, God knows who we are. He made us. He knows that they killed the servants, that they beat the people. He knows what we do to people who challenge us and try to take authority away from us. He knows how we respond. This was not an accident. The who of the crime is not ultimately the Pharisees. It's not, it's not us who are the wicked tenants. It's that God knowingly went in to a situation that had already signed his death warrant. And just so you know, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I wanna, um, I'm not going to go there yet. I want to give you one more image, one more thing to understand. That the night he was betrayed, before he was arrested, Jesus went to a garden on the Mount of Olives. And while he was there, uh, he, he, he did some praying. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I want you to understand geographically where the Mount of Olives was. You see... It was a Sabbath day because it was the night of the Passover. It was the evening of Passover. And on the Sabbath day, there were legal restrictions on how far you could travel on the Sabbath. You had to stay within 2,000 cubits of home, basically, which is about two-thirds of a mile. Uh, and, and if you walked any more than that, you were in violation of Sabbath law. And, and again, just as a reminder, Sabbath uh, religious law and civic law were the same in this time, right? So this wasn't like today where you violate a religious law. Who cares? Uh, like in those days, it mattered, right? 
And, and so they'd already set up a perimeter where they had said, like, officially, legally, this is how far you can walk outside of Jerusalem and still be legal, still be kosher, right? And the Mount of Olives was at the limit. The garden and the Mount of Olives was exactly like they had said officially, you can go to the Mount of Olives, you can go to this garden, anything past that, you are not allowed to travel, okay? And it's in that spot that Jesus goes, and it's in that spot that he prays this prayer, Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, vineyard owner, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is God's decision to make. And I think it's super important where this prayer was prayed and why why I kind of spelled out the geography. Because here's the thing, if Jesus is in the garden on the Mount of Olives, And he takes even a few steps and exits that garden on the side away from Jerusalem. He's untouchable. Literally, they can't arrest him because the religious leaders have to abide by their own laws. They can't go any farther than the limits of the garden on the Mount of Olives. And when he prays this prayer, take this cup from me, it would have been so easy to take the cup away. He just walks a few steps and he is free and clear. There's no arrest. There's no crime. There's no Pharisees or religious leaders getting pegged for it. There's no wicked tenants that have to answer some hard questions about themselves. There's nothing that would happen to Jesus. He would live. The murder victim would survive. But he stayed. He stayed in the spot where he knew that they could reach him and where they could arrest him. He chose not to take those few steps, which tells me that this crime that we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes was not actually a crime of hate. It was a crime of love. Because the only reason that Jesus had to stay, the only reason that the Father's will was for him to bear this cup was because he wanted something better for us. See, he could have avoided it. He could have left. There would have been no crime, no murder, no death. And then we all, every one of us, would have been doomed to a life of emptiness and meaninglessness. We would have faced what Thomas Hobbes called, you know, real life, which is just, you know, nasty, brutish, and short. We would have been left with nothing to say but eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we all may die just suck what little joy you can out of this life while you have it because there's nothing after this but instead it was a crime of love where God who knew full well what we were he knew we were wicked tenants he knew exactly how he would be treated he chose to let his son be murdered for our sake he loved us enough to make an unthinkable choice to go to his death willingly which means it's not the guilt is not on us it's not on religious leaders the responsibility for this crime lies squarely with God so yay mystery solved who did it? God why? because he loves us that much But see, there's one more part at the very end of any mystery show or book, which is after the crime has been solved, after you know who did it and you know why they did it, there's got to be the consequences. 
Someone's got to go to jail. Someone's got to, got to, you know, forgive somebody. Like there's got to be some, some change in life that happens now that the crime has been solved. And so I put it to you because here is my question. How will you respond to this crime from 2000 years ago? Will you be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the wicked tenants, the people who reject the vineyard owner because they'd rather not have anything to do with the one who gave them life in the first place? Or will you choose to not let this crime be in vain? To be the beneficiary of the sacrifice that God was willing to make for you. And to embrace this crime is something that God was willing to do so that you would not have to face eternal death and despair, but that you could have the full fruits of the vineyard that he intends for you, an eternal life with him and with all who love him. As you consider that choice, as you consider your response, I want to ask, invite you to join me in singing this next song because the point of these parables, the point of this ridiculous detail is, is not ultimately to focus on our own broken nature, although that matters, but is to focus and see on the nature of this God, this God who is so ridiculous that he would scatter seed on a road, that he would leave the 99 to get the one sheep and that he would willingly face his own torture and death because that's exactly how much he loves 